I almost got into some rhythmic movement on that song. Couldn't stop my leg. By the way, it's great to be back with you. We've been gone for three Sundays. Uh, we had as great a trip as I could hope for, and you'll be hearing glimpses of it throughout the weeks as we continue our way through God's Word. Today we're in 2 Samuel chapter 10, and we will be looking at the entire chapter, uh, a great chapter in God's Word. There's some interesting things happening in the book of 2 Samuel. Um, we'll see a strong connection between this chapter and uh, chapter 9. Chapter 9, as you remember last week, we taught last week, last time I preached, um, David practicing kessed or loving kindness, covenantal kindness, with the house of Saul. But in chapter 10, he now extends covenantal kindness to the nations represented by Hanan and the Ammonites. Uh, chapters 8 and 9 show us the greatness and glory of David as king, but chapters 11 and 12 are going to bring him down right before our eyes. So interesting things happening in this book. We will see that David is made of flesh and blood like us. Hear now the word of the Lord as we read in chapter 10 beginning in verse 1. After this, the king of the Ammonites died. And Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, Do you think? Because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. And when it was told David, he sent to meet them for the men were greatly ashamed and the king said remain in Jericho until your beards have grown and then return when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah 20,000 foot soldiers and the king of Maaka with 1,000 men and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of his mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up a battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Maacah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and arrayed them against the Ammonites. Now listen carefully. 
this is Joab's golden spiritual moment. The only one we know that he has, so listen carefully. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people, for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Boom, there it is. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together and Hadad-Azer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadad-Azer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him, and the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadad-Azer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that your word will come to us in power today. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we do pray that you would enable the one who speaks as well as the ones who listen to do so uh, with joy and with receptivity. We pray you'll take away our heart of stone, our heart of resistance, our heart of shame and guilt, and we would have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And we pray this in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now, what a story, huh? Another story about war. And we've heard a number of these stories in the corpus of the books First and Second Samuel. There's a lot of war in here going on. But this one in particular is rather amazing in how foolish people can be sometimes. And the foolishness here is pronounced by the actions of the enemies of the king. Uh, David himself. And so David intended to show kindness. And the reason he did, if you'll remember back, Nahash of the Ammonites had provided for David protection and cover when Saul was chasing him to kill him. And so they had a previous relationship. And so David was now king over all the land, over all of Israel. And so his sending this delegation was something that kings did. It was a very common, practical approach for him to send a delegation to express condolences for the death of Nahash and to engage his son, Hanan. By the way, Hanan's name means grace. Just like Hannah is the feminine form of grace, Hanan is the masculine form of the word grace but Hanan is anything but gracious he listens to the counsel of some of his soldiers 
who were very suspicious of David's moves. Now, David's motivations, it appears from the text, are, poor, uh, are practical. They are what a king would do. They are pure. He's just basically reinforcing the treaty that had already been made and saying things will continue to carry on. You'll continue to rule, but you'll do so subservient to my kingdom. And so he sends these guys there, and uh, David reaffirms his dominance of Ammon, Ammon when the father Nahash dies. The action is parallel to the action of any government sending a high official to the funeral of a leader of an allied state in order to meet the new leader and to affirm solidarity. So that's what David is doing. David intends that the treaty solidarity should continue with the Ammonites. He doesn't want the relationship changed. Uh, in the narrative, David begins his interaction with the Ammonites by a gesture of chesed. The word H-E-S-E-D, of course, has the hard k, chesed, and he extends it, but it gets rebuffed. The chesed is rebuffed, and his chesed is rejected. The new Ammonite king, unlike his father, saw no need to remain subservient to David as his father had, and his advisors take a very hard line. They mistrust David's motives and urge a harsh response uh, to the king. Hanan, the king of the Ammonites, commits a deliberately provocative act. But before I take, uh, talk about that, I just wanted to talk for a minute about suspicion. Have you ever noticed when you begin to question another person's motives in whatever they do for you, either inside the church or outside the church, then you begin to become suspicious toward them, and everything they do is seen through the lenses of suspicion. You ever had that happen to you? Have you ever done that? Don't lie. Surely you've done that. A person you trusted, a person who you cared for, a person who has been in your life does something and you begin to read into it all kinds of motives. One of my favorite stories to talk about how you can never really know another person's motives is related to Thanksgiving and since it's coming up and this is here and now, I'm going to tell you this story. There was a major corporation in downtown Dallas, Texas that gave the employees every year, uh, the day before Thanksgiving, a frozen turkey. And that was just the big deal, and hardly anybody wanted it. And there were single guys there, and what are they going to do with a, a whole turkey? So there was one guy, and he rode the bus back and forth to his apartment every day. And so he took the turkey, but unbeknownst to him, some of his friends decide to play a trick on him. Rather than giving him a turkey, they took paper mache and shaped it into the form of a turkey, stuffed it so it bore the weight of a turkey, wrapped it up to look just like the other turkey, and gave him that turkey. Well, on the way home, the man takes his fake turkey that he doesn't know is fake, okay? And he sees a homeless man on the bus. And he says to the homeless man, you know, he thinks in his head, I'm a single guy. What am I going to do with this turkey? That guy's probably got a family, probably knows other people. I'll give him the turkey and bless him for Thanksgiving. 
And so he gives the homeless man the turkey. He comes back to work on Monday morning, and all the guys are having a great laugh, walk in, look at him, and say, how about that turkey we gave you? And he said, I don't know. I gave it to a homeless man on the bus. And so there's somewhere in Dallas, Texas, there's a homeless man walking around thinking he got ripped off and thinking the worst of that guy's motives when his motives were pure. You never know what somebody's motives are and watch out for suspicion creeping in because it will lead you to interpret everything another person does in the worst possible light. And you know who loves that more than anybody in the universe? Satan. That's how he divides churches. That's how he destroys churches. When, when mistrust happens, suspicion creeps up, and we begin to backbite against other people. We begin to talk negatively about others. Did you see what they said? Did you see what they did? Can you believe they're... If you're in the midst of that, ladies and gentlemen, repent of your sin now, today. Because that's what that is. But anyhow, with David... <laughs> This guy, Hanan, was quite a guy. He decided to send a message. Now, our Bibles are always real conservative with how they talk about things. And you know me, I like to be realistic. And so when it says they cut half their beards off, they did. They shaved one side of their face, left the beard on the other side of the face. But when it says that they cut off their robe, what it means was they had nothing on from the waist down. They were exposed on the front side and the back side. And they were driven out of town. And you can imagine they must have gone through a gauntlet in the city, people screaming at them and mocking at them and taunting them as they left the city. Nothing could have condemned, nothing could have uh, done more to disparage their manhood and dignity than what was done to them. That was a stupid, foolish thing for this man to do, which is precisely what he did do. And so the uh, next thing that happens is they're sent out of the city. They've been humiliated. They've been exposed. Uh, the king must know that such an act was unacceptable and intolerable. It was an act of war against any monarchy. Nobody does that. And so David and the Ammonites clearly intend war or the Ammonites clearly intend war with David in order to end their subservient position. But before the war narrative opens, David displays, in this case, a rather remarkable compassion and sensitivity to those men who have been humiliated. He gives them a chance to regrow their beards and recover their signs of manhood before making a public appearance back in Jerusalem. This verse is a nice aside indicating why David could uh, commend such, could command such tenacious loyalty from his servants and his soldiers. And so the regrowth of the beards in Jericho is only an interlude. Now, I went on this trip, and it's funny how you see Israel. And we're riding in a bus. And you're listening to a guide in the front talking on a microphone, and we're going about 70 miles an hour, and all of a sudden he says, to your left is where Jericho is. Zoom, you go by. <laughs> but at least you get a glimpse of where Jericho was. The thing that struck me the most on this trip was how close these th things are 
together to one another. They're not nearly as spread out as I thought in my mind. But it was rather remarkable that we, we on this trip saw some of the exact terrain, I'm sure it's changed over the years, but the places where a lot of these things occurred. Uh, the response here that was given was incredibly unwise because I want you to put your finger in 2 Samuel 10 but turn to the Psalms and turn to Psalm 2 and I want you to see how this narrative is actually a representation of Psalm 2. And uh, so I'm going to read Psalm 2 in its entirety just to show you. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king, uh, initial fulfillment would be David, on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, and today I have begotten you. Ask me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, including Hanan, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. This is what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 10. Chapter 10 starts in the same way as chapter 9. David plans to show kindness. His kindness is rejected. Hanan, if he had been wise, would have received that, continued the relationship, but now he has disgraced David's delegation, and this means war. David does his best again to minimize the humiliation, but such humiliation of an ambassador is very serious indeed. It's not wisdom, it's foolishness. The Ammonites realize their mistake and prepare for war by hiring Syrian mercenaries. And the Syrians probably had their own agenda, control. They had an agenda. Why were they so ready to jump into this conflict? Because they had the north-south trade route and they were trying to protect that and access to that. So that's why they jumped in. It wasn't for nothing. And the Ammonites and the Syrians uh, and were going to envelop Israel in a pincer movement. So Joab, David's commander, divides the forces between himself and his brother, and he says, Be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and for the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. There again is, you know, we've been talking about Joab. And Joab is the poster Rambo child. He is a warrior. He kills anything that moves, anything that comes in his path. And he, he's hard to control. He's difficult to oversee. But in this case, 
you know, a broken clock is right twice a day, and a blind pig finds an acorn every now and then. And Joab expresses faith. And he does here. The Lord will do as it seems good to him. Sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, that's all we got. Do you understand that? Do you understand that in this life, as we live our lives, we have no idea what God is up to? We cannot read the tea leaves of providence and come up with an answer. We cannot figure it out. It's like a, a mystery to us, a riddle, and we're struggling with it. But Joab's theology, at least, at least at this point, is right on. The Lord is good. It is impossible for him to do anything that is not good. Only goodness comes from him. And the Lord will do what is good, that which seems to him to be good. And many times in our lives, that is all we have to hold on to. But it's not nothing. It's really everything. I often tell myself when I'm struggling, try, trying to understand why certain things are impinging into my life and destroying my comfort, which I hate. I mean, I, I, my God often is comfort. Don't discomfort me. Or you will catch the wrath of Tim. And the Lord loves to discomfort me. Why? Well, he's delivering me from that idol. I get it. But one of the things in life I think that I've come to understand is this. If I knew what God knew, I would understand why these things are happening to me. I don't know why. But I can only trust what I do know. And what I do know, that if he was willing to give up his only son for me as a sacrifice... How shall he not with him freely give me all things? The greatest expression of love is the gift of his son to us. And how could I not but trust him if he's willing to do that, even though I can't make sense of it? And that's kind of where Jeroboam is. Who's going to win the war? I don't know. But the Lord will do that which seems good to him. And so... Uh, this is the only time, by the way, that God is even mentioned in this chapter. Whatever else his faults may have been, this is the first reference to him since the murder of Abner. Joab has faith in God. It's similar to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace when they said they will serve God whether he delivers from the furnace or not. In any given situation, God may deliver us or he may not. He may intervene, as we hope, or he may not. But we can be confident that he will do what is good. Why? Because he loves us with a love that is indescribable. And he only intends to do us good as he defines good. Not as I define good, but as he defines good. And so we can be confident in our ultimate and eternal salvation and we can be brave because we cannot ultimately fail at all. When the um, Syrians flee before Joab, the Ammonites give up and the, uh, the Syrian mercenaries regroup and call for reinforcements and the battle is engaged and David is victorious. The chapter ends, so the Syrians were afraid to help the Ammonites anymore. The word afraid is related to the word to see. And if you look at this text closely, which we don't have time to do, you will see the phrase see or to see or saw at least seven times in this chapter. 
The Ammonites scorn God's king and they are defeated. The Syrians join the rebellion and they are defeated twice. The story echoes again the statements of Psalm 2. The nations conspire against the Lord and against his anointed, but they plot in vain. The response to God's king will lead you to destruction, or this response will. God has given our Lord Jesus Christ authority over the nations. And so Jesus sends us, his people, to the nations, commanding them to obey his rule. That is what the mission of the church is. Go into all nations and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and lo, I will be with you uh, all the way. This is what the mission of the church is to the four corners of the world. We extend the reign of Christ by proclaiming his kingdom. Christ's rule is good news. But make no mistake, to reject the rule of Christ is bad news. It is very, very bad news indeed. God will establish his king. Today the rulers of the earth are every one of us. More than ever, we run our own lives the way we choose. The most popular song played at funerals, at least if you do secular funerals, usually is I did it my way. I'll never forget, I did a funeral one time. And, and they played the song, I did it my way, and I was just sitting there thinking to myself, how ungodly could you be at this moment? How just inane and foolish it is to think that you have conquered death because you did it your way. Now death conquered you. You know, the Bible tells us in the book of Romans that the, the goodness of God, the kindness of God is sent to us to uh, bring about in us repentance. The kindness of God leads to repentance. When David had extended the kindness, they rejected it, and they didn't repent, and they suffered for it. Because God, the same book of Romans says, is storing up his wrath like a dam, water behind a dam, storing up his wrath for people who refuse to see his goodness and repent before his face. And one day that dam will break and the judgment of God will fall upon people. Jesus is not some weak-kneed, pale Galilean. Jesus is Lord. He came the first time as the suffering servant. He will come the second time with the sword of the Lord coming out of his mouth, riding a horse and wreaking vengeance upon those who know not God, who do not believe the gospel. You say, well, I don't like that kind of talk. It doesn't matter whether you like it or not. It's what the Bible says, and the Bible is clear that Jesus will either be your Savior or he will be your judge. He will be your Savior or he will be your judge, depending on how you respond to him and the grace of God in your life. But do here's the Romans passage. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourselves for the day of wrath when the righteous judgment will be revealed. What hope is there for rebels against God's king? Psalm 
2 ends like this. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. We are all rebels against God. We have all tried to live our lives without him at the center. We all deserve his judgment. But Christ himself provides refuge for his own judgment. He took the judgment of his people on himself at the cross. You not only need to be saved from your sin, but you need to be saved from God. And his judgment and his righteous judgment in your life. And the way God has dealt with the human race is by taking his judgment upon his son. And judging his son in our place so that we can repent and receive him and forever be uh, under his favor and accepted by him for all eternity. And that's what this passage points to ultimately in the anointed one, the Christ himself. Those who are willing to bow before the Son, God's anointed, and say, at your service, will find a refuge in his family. But those who continue to rebel against the Son will be conquered uh, when he returns at the end of history. They will be subdued just as David subdued the Philistines. Because one way or another, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So those servants of David and the delegation were scorned for the king's sake. You may no longer scorn the king. You may instead now be scorned for the king's sake. You may be like the delegation that David sent to Hanun or Hanan. You may have not had your backside exposed, but in otherwise, perhaps more subtle ways, you have been greatly humiliated because you are a Christian. Your friends, so-called friends, have heaped abuse on you. and You no longer join them in their reckless lifestyle. We may have to endure a daily round of mockery from colleagues and wither inside each time we hear Christ's name scorned at your workplace. Your family may have opposed your faith. King David was concerned about the humiliation his servants endured in the same way Jesus is concerned about your suffering. On this trip, we were at one point in the city of Ephesus, and so we go to the arena which seated about 30,000 people and sit. Our whole tour group, there were 150 of us, are seated in the arena, and one of our leaders decides to preach on the text, and he's using microphones that only we can hear because, you know, when you travel, you have those pack systems where you can hear the guy. So he has like four microphones on, and he's talking to us about Paul standing in that very arena facing opposition because of the goddess Artemis um, and the silver making and Demetrius, his silver making, and that Paul's gospel has come into Ephesus and it's destroying their economy because people are chunking away their uh, idols to Artemis. And it's destroying businesses and it's destroying the economy and Paul has got to go. So while our guy is saying that, all of a sudden, some man walks up behind him, we were there, taps him on the shoulder, and essentially says to him, stop preaching, go sit down. So he walks away, and as he did, for some reason, and, and you know, I would say people on this particular trip, on this particular tour, are not always flaming evangelists, 
But for some reason, we all began to sing Amazing Grace. And in that amphitheater, you could hear it plain as day. We sung all four stanzas of Amazing Grace. Right when that guy pushed our leader off. Now, was that a great act of courage? No, there was nobody there with guns that were going to get us. But it was a response to him forbidding our man to say anything about that text at that time in that building. And I thought, what a remarkable way to respond to it graciously by singing that hymn that people probably know across the world in one form or another. And it was a great moment to be there. You are going to be persecuted for your faith if your faith is real and if it's genuine. But we remember that when we are humiliated for the sake of Christ, not for being an idiot, not for doing something stupid or self-righteous, but for the sake of Christ, we will again be granted blessing and protection and God will preserve us either in life or death. In Acts chapter 4, the church used Psalm 2 to pray for boldness, to preach Christ uh, as they are brought before the Sanhedrin and told to stop something they refused to do. And they use Psalms 2 this about what this story is about to do that. One final point to note is David is the Christ, the little c, God's anointed king. He is a type or prefiguring of the ultimate king. And we're about to see David in chapter 11 do something that our king never did, fall into deep sin. He will not be the king we hoped or that he should be. And there's a, perhaps a hint of what is to come in chapter 10. There's a lot of dividing into two in this chapter. Beards are shaved in half. Garments are cut in the middle. Armies are split in two. Even the battle itself takes place in two rounds. Perhaps it is meant to foreshadow what's going to happen to David and his family in chapters 11 through 20 because of David's sin. David is about to take a great fall. Thank you that our Lord Jesus Christ, our Messiah, the Anointed One, never fail. And he took David's sin upon himself and dealt with it, just like he takes our sin upon himself and atones for it. What a glorious Savior we have. And so that is 2 Samuel chapter 10. If you want to hear the bad news, come back next week because it's going to be really bad. David does stuff that you would think no king like him would ever do, but he does it, and there's a lot to learn there. With that said, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in Jesus himself. We are so thankful for this chapter being in Scripture, and we're thankful for the way it is spoken to us about our position before you and our position before the world and our responsibilities uh, before the world. Father, we pray you'll continue to bless us as we now take an offering. May we give as those who are grateful and even excited about our faith, and we want to contribute to what you're doing in the world and uh, to the kingdom already that will one day be here in full. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.